and welcome to Ministry Mondays with Meg. I'm Meg. Welcome to season three, episode one of season three. And um, we are so glad that you are here. There's like a purpose behind the podcast, if you believe it or not. Uh, purpose of the podcast is to talk about those ministries that go on beyond the pulpit. Because um, you know what? Clergy people most of them I know actually are really cool people. Um, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> and one of those, da -da -da, see, look, I was going somewhere this, with this. Uh, yeah, you know my name, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of those cool people is my guest today. Da -da -da -da. All right, drum roll and fanfare, please. Please welcome Reverend Michael Wolf. PhD, uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Wolf. Welcome to Ministry Mothers of Big. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. I know. And I feel terrible like that it's taken me this long because your name has actually been on my board, but I just like, I don't know. I have a little ADD and sometimes it, I just. Well, all things have their appointed season. That's right. Cool. So you get to kick off season three. And so I'm so glad. Um, so I'm going to assume because like not everybody knows everybody. I mean, um, that there are people that don't know you. Why don't you tell our, um, our audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. So I'm in Evanston, Illinois, and I am the senior minister. I'm the pastor of Lake Street Church of Evanston. And that's, uh. American Baptist congregation here, and I've been here since 2019. And uh, really, the thing that's that Evanston's really well known for is as the first city, the first municipality in the nation to have a reparations program. Uh, so reparations conversations really started in Evanston. That's been a big part of my ministry here outside the pulpit. I also did an academic doctorate degree, a PhD um, at Harvard Divinity School. And I got to write and think about a lot of cool stuff. And uh, one of the things that I got to do was uh, write this really cool book. Um, it's called Sanctuary and Subjectivity. So that's been a pretty exciting thing. I also teach at uh, Lewis University. I teach theology and do a little writing here and there for places like Sojourners. When do you sleep? Uh, I sleep really well at night. I always get eight to ten. Eight to ten is uh, so I always try to. But uh, I, I found that uh, since uh, uh, having my daughter, who's six years old now, I'm much more productive with the time I have <laughs> because there's a lot less of it. You're you become really good at maximizing it. So kids will do that too. <laughs> they, yeah. they will really do that too. No kidding. For sure. Yeah. Wow. So is. The whole city of Evanston is doing the reparations. Is that right? Right. So uh, it's it's based on there's a there's a program and there's plenty of places to read about this. Uh, but there's a it was the first uh, program to launch in the nation. And so it was passed by the city council. It's really the brainchild of one older person, uh, Robin Rue Simmons. And um, she she's gone on to have a nonprofit that sort of focuses on municipal reparations. But the, I think they've identified over there's definitely over 100 ancestors that will qualify based on housing discrimination, redlining, uh, and there have been uh, dozens of payments that have gone out that are uh, tens of thousands of dollars. So what does that look like for then churches? 
Sure. So churches play a big factor in making their uh, their neighborhoods, right? So they're they're pretty. Uh, for us, our story is that we we were linked and we had a, a racist past, really, and a past based in white supremacy, where a congregation uh, that got started that's now called Second Baptist uh, started at, at First Baptist, which is what we used to be called. And uh, those black members left First Baptist to form Second Baptist due to segregated seating, lack of uh, opportunities for leadership, and uh, a whole bunch of other things, just a lack of interest from First Baptist on serving the, the really growing black community in Evanston. So there was a, a, a lot that was going on there. That's part of our story. So part of our reparations is also thinking about that story. But other churches who don't have quite as um, tangible a narrative, uh, they still played really important roles in, in making different neighborhoods and in excluding. Uh, and so they benefited from redlining and participated in redlining, as well as a host of other things. Uh, and so most, a, a ton of churches, and, uh, and as well as uh, the two synagogues in town are really active. And we have an interfaith clergy group, and we're really active on supporting reparations at the city level and also diving into some of our stories to try to learn and, and to contemplate and to uh, work through and make repair out of uh, stories of white supremacy in our in our past that are past congregations so how long how long did that start i, I didn't remember did yeah so like it started the year i got into town so it's been okay. with me basically uh the entire time 2019 um and so second baptist church has had a sister church relationship with lake street for a, a longer period of time back in the 90s uh, and so that was a relationship that I didn't form, but inherited. And so I got to do this rich partnership with the pastor um, who is uh, who is there at Second Baptist at our sister church. His name's uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Neighbors. And so I, I got to work with him quite a bit and getting to work with him. It's been a, a real privilege and, and joy. And, um, you know, he's taught me a lot. And so uh, I think that that's uh, that's really some benefits that I came into at Lake Street is that uh, had, they had this rich partnership and this sister church relationship. And also at the same time, building conversations about reparations were happening. So there's a lot of theological work, a lot of work inside congregations and outside the congregations sort of coming together to support reparations. And is that right that both you and Reverend Neighbors won the Dahlberg? That's award? true, yeah. Is that right? Did I remember that, that right? That, that that is true yeah so uh we won that award before the activism we were doing in the in the city um around reparations and also for working through and thinking about our our uh two congregations story and what that's like and so one of the things that's happened is there was a um there was this a uh, real recognition that although uh, the black members of Perfect Baptist really built uh, and were part of building and making of the community and of the building that is Lake Street Church of Evanston currently. When they left, they didn't get to take any of that equity with them. So one of the things that's been really important is about restoring uh, Second Baptist to some ownership in this mm -hmm. building, being able to say that it's not just ours and trying to articulate, we have a shared past it's not so pretty but can we also have a shared future together as two congregations and that's always yeah. tough work it's not easy but i think um and it's not easy for different reasons for my congregation and his congregation but it has been you know the most fulfilling work that i've ever gotten to do for sure i i love that that you're like so this is 
who we were and while we can't go back and change that we can move forward together to make this different i mean yeah, so so much of this feels like, especially amongst white congregations, which is where I've spent my career, you know, because I am white and I, and I think about whiteness all the time. But the thing right. is that people think about talking about the past. And if they talk about racism or if they talk about white supremacy, that it's it's uh, it's going to make it worse, that it's it's just a, something we can't uh, uh, we can't really fix. It happened in the past. If we just leave it, then perhaps we can go move forward. But really what happens is when we talk about that and when we commit to making that a part of our story and commit to working through it and making amends, that it actually enables a future to come into view that wouldn't have been there before. And also uh, it is uh, talking about and wrestling with white supremacy and these stories, these stories that are there if you, if you want to look most of the time. Uh, the story between our two churches, for instance, is replicated hundreds of times, thousands of times throughout the United States where there was one church and then there was two. Um, and the reasons for that were white supremacy most of the time. And also a beautiful, wonderful desire for these uh, independent black institutions to serve their community. That's also part of it too. So it's not all uh, bad reasons, but a lot of the time there is there is some something there. But and really wrestling with that, new futures can be made possible. It's uh, the probably the best thing that can be done as opposed to pretending so often um, that people and institutions want to pretend uh, like the past didn't happen or it didn't happen that yeah. way or refuse to acknowledge it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, like it, it like, oh, it won't hurt as much if we just don't talk about it kind of thing or it'll, it'll just go away if we don't talk about it, but yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, so how things, how things changed since 2019 um, your city or church well i mean i think that everybody everybody who's in ministry is definitely still dealing with the fallout of COVID 19. i think that it did right. change how we did, did things it made um it enabled certain uh futures for sure but also took away uh, the past in ways that make it um i don't know it, 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 you can't do things the same way you did in 2019. Um, and I think that that's, that's a big adjustment. A, a lot of people, you know, don't have the same attendance patterns that they, they did in the past around uh, going to church. I think that that's, that's, a, that's a big adjustment. So I think the, the main thing that's changed is that you have to meet people where they are um, and try to keep people engaged, even if that's not on a Sunday in in-person attendance. Um, and so my big thing is not, has been, and this is, you know, people disagree with me all the time. I don't really care how people participate in the life of the church. I don't care how people are affiliated with the church. I don't care how people, um, I just want engagement. I want people to care that we exist and to engage somehow. And if that means that you watch the Sunday service on Wednesday afternoon, when you have time, I'm cool with that. That sounds great. Whatever, whatever can happen is good. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, yeah, I love it. Some of the things that um, that happened as a result of of the pandemic was some of those things that we as pastors really hoped would happen. Um, but without a pandemic, you know, you know like but like Zoom yeah. services and 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 that opportunity to to watch your watch your um, 
church service on a on a Wednesday afternoon because you know sometimes it's nice to sleep in and sometimes it's um life just doesn't work the way we want it to work and you know you got a kid your parent you know uh there's all those sure. things that, that that play in there um uh, if i remember right your your church was already like very active in the community before all of that is that Sure. Yeah. So there's some big strengths. I, you don't. I didn't have to do much work to figure out what what the church was about. I mean, it was it's pretty active on um, justice issues in, in the community. It's the place where the first and uh, the most important sort of linchpin for suburban North Shore uh, outside Chicago uh, homelessness prevention and uh, care for the unhoused is. Uh, so there was a homeless shelter that was started in the 1980s, uh, which was as a great story um uh, but the homeless shelter that was started in the 1980s in, in the church basement and the city council didn't want to approve it uh so they had a uh, 24-hour uh, prayer services where uh, food and uh places to sleep would be so i mean i think there's a real radical nature to some of what was done in the 1980s uh, by my predecessor uh and i think uh that that's just really cool building on that legacy is really cool um and now that that sort of homeless shelter that started as Hill's place in the basement, now now is a sort of a giant network, um, really that is that is taking care of um, the unhoused in a in a huge uh, radius. Really, it's not just about an Evanston thing. So, they're, and they're really the only game in town on suburban North Shore stuff, North suburban um, uh, outside Chicago to to give care to and to provide shelter for the unhoused. So. I think that that's a really cool legacy and they're still there you know they're still they're still there in in the basement and we're still um, they actually have offices in another wing of our church so uh, we still get to have a, a rich relationship there even though they're their own 501c3 now I, I love though that they were willing to go okay well council said no well we're going to find a way around that and let's let's just let's just do it this way and yeah. and and that but they're willing to, to yeah it's just the imagination right like to be able yeah. to, to imagine like okay they said no who cares we're going to do it this way and you know and let's see if they step in there i doubt they will because you know i guess what i talk about the book is about the sanctuary movement in the 1980s right part of what the just a point of connection is like part of what the sanctuary movement relied on part of what they relied on doing the prayer services is that police don't like to go into houses of worship and take people out of them. It's just, a, it's a, it's spoken and unspoken taboo. Uh, and so that sort of plays into both right. of those issues is really, really helpful. So for those who don't know what the sanctuary movement is, do you want to give like an explanation of? Sure. Of so the sanctuary movement in the 1980s uh, was this network of congregations, it was an interfaith, uh, affair. There were uh, there were Protestants, there were Catholics, there were Unitarian Universalists, there were Jewish congregations uh, that participated in in this sanctuary movement. And it, what it did is it, it took um, what they called uh, refugees, and but were often you know political activists who were wanted to come to the United States and also continue some political activism too. It's more complex than just a sort of a refugee thing. Um, but from from uh, Places in Central America. We're talking about Guatemala, um, and 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 
and come to the United States uh, and receive sanctuary and sort of asylum against okay. the wishes of uh, because uh, the current Reagan administration was denying asylum. So to, to folks who were to Central American refugees and asylum seekers who were uh, mm -hmm. who were coming here. The other place that people come from is El Salvador. That was that was the other place. Okay. So it was the, really Guatemala and El Salvador make up the big chunk here. And uh, the Reagan administration was approving something like 1% of asylum cases at the time for this group because uh, who was in power uh, was supported by our government. So if you if you allow asylum cases through, you're you're basically saying that government isn't functioning and we're giving it money and mm -hmm. we're supporting it. So that can't be true. Uh, definitely, they were willing to take asylum cases from left wing governments in uh, Central and Latin America, but not uh, from conservative governments propped up by the Reagan administration. So these congregations took and gave housing. Sometimes it was in a church or a, a house of worship in some way. Sometimes it was an apartment connected to it. Sometimes it was in a parsonage or a lot. There's actually no one way that would be a majority to do it. Um, and so against the wishes, of course, illegally, um, you know, provided. And there was there was one high, high profile trial that took place of people. And so uh, they provide housing. Uh, the person would speak, uh, you know, about what is actually going on in, in their country of origin, which was uh, not really getting out into the news is true. So it's an alternative sort of news source in, in some ways too, and continue some of their uh, activism in the United States. So uh, these congregations or hundreds of them um, had someone come through. There was also something called the Underground Railroad, um, you know, where people were made it to Canada uh, or were doing stops. And sometimes they were speaking tours or a lot of different ways to do it. There were caravans there, there but really it was a, I would say it's it was both it wasn't really about immigration a lot of people the new sanctuary movement is about immigration but the sanctuary movement in the 1980s wasn't about immigration it was about asylum policy and it was about anti-reagan activism mm -hmm. it was about uh, humanitarian efforts uh and wanting to say people are suffering and we can do something about it um, so i think that there were a lot of different ways that people got involved but it wasn't really about immigration but now it is now, it's now, so the New Sanctuary Movement, uh, and I pastor a church in the New Sanctuary Movement, and uh, was one of the first churches that sort of signed on to that in 2014, and we've, we've had a family there um, in, in our church, um, and uh, the uh, New Sanctuary Movement is really about immigration, so it, okay. it is really a, a, about um, uh, pushing for immigration reform, and so they're different, they're same strategy, in, in, but they're applied to a different political issue. Okay, so if it took if it if it comes to it, these churches are saying, if if there is no other option, like they could live in the church, right? And yeah. and that we're going to protect you from being deported in some way, because again, there's okay. this, that, um, you know, that uh, immigration officials don't want to enter a church and take someone out. So this again, relying on this sort of special privilege. That churches and the houses of worship generally enjoy in the United States. Okay. Okay. Wow. I'm learning a lot today. I mean, that and that's a good thing. Um, and and so you guys also, you have a family. You said in mm -hmm. the churches supporting. Awesome. This is awesome. Um, why aren't more churches doing this? Are they afraid? 
Why are more? Uh, it's it's kind of hard to get connected. Honestly, I'm not sure more churches should do it because it just depends what the level of support is. I've seen in some good models where many different congregations come together and, and do it, and that can be really effective. It's a lot for one congregation to do, and most congregations are not set up that well um, to sort of do this. So there are, but you know, in desperate circumstances, it can be good. But generally, uh, folks who uh, work with the undocumented community. Uh, and have that expertise or, or better, uh, okay. I think. So you're, doing, you're making a big stand. You're saying like, we're not, you know, when you do it, you're also, you're critiquing a particular policy. It gets political. You got to be sort of aligned with that criticism that you're going to give on that yeah. sort of thing. It could, could tear congregations apart. And the book is somewhat about like, maybe they're not so good at it, <laughs> you know? And I think that that's, you know, that's a big part of the book. So, so the book you wrote all comes out of is it your experience with the new sanctuary movement? What what is the what is okay? The book about? Yeah, so uh, the book is mainly about the sanctuary movement in the 1980s. Uh, so that okay. I interviewed, I interviewed the big thing that it does that not a lot of other pieces of work have done is that it interviews not just white activists but also interviews recipients of sanctuary. So the people who were there, and so I I tracked down and I. Um, you know, I interviewed 30, you know, 15 activists, 15 uh, folks who received sanctuaries is pretty evenly split and um, learned what that experience was like. And one of the things that I learned in that is that, you know, I wanted to think theologically about what does it mean for white activists to sort of uh, play this role and also for good meaning liberal religious white activists to also control your housing uh, and to and to and to want you to be sort of an ideal refugee as opposed to if you had if you had for instance most of the recipients I I talked to had been um, really powerful trade union activists for instance uh, or indigenous mm -hmm. rights activists in their native country in their countries of origin and uh, the there wasn't a lot of room for uh, um, for talking about some of that activism. So for instance, so there's a couple of the indigenous folks, the Mayan uh, community that came here wanted to talk about a 500 year uh, legacy and history of colonialism, that all of this is sort of bound up together. But why activists in the sanctuary movement didn't really want to hear about that. Um, so I think that uh, it is some of those things uh, that I talk about in the book, but there's friction, there's tension, and there's a limit, you know, there's there's not sometimes it, it, it can be invisible to why activists. And so to make sure that I'm not just saying, oh, I know best. Um, I wrote mm -hmm. a chapter also that's an autoethnographic chapter um, that is about my experience being a white pastor of a new sanctuary movement church and how easy it is to get caught in these traps. I think that sanctuary itself that makes it a little that has great promise but also yeah. a lot of pitfalls. And uh, for me, thinking about the movement, I was sort of in love with it, right? I fell in love with it in, the, in my MDiv program. And I thought I did a congregational history of a congregation in Massachusetts on how they did the sanctuary movement and their participation mm -hmm. and did archival research. I interviewed people and I was like, okay, I love it. I wanna do this. Um, and I wanna do it in a bigger scale. Um, and, but it was a great test run for me. And part of what I loved about it as, as a, progressive uh, white pastor is like, here are these progressive white pastors and congregations 
doing really good stuff that I can identify with. Uh, and so, and I, I sort of lionized it. And as I came to be more aware that whiteness and white supremacy is also a part of liberal and spaces that I love in my own ministry, that became possible to sort of uh, say, okay, so whiteness is a, important. So the subtitle of this book, Sanctuary and Subjectivity, is thinking theologically about whiteness in sanctuary mm -hmm. movements. So about the ways that whiteness and white supremacy um, sort of uh, define the contours of what it's like to practice sanctuary, I would say. And, and my own ministry. And so it's, it's not just like, I know better, I did the research and you should have done it this way. It's, it's much more, if there is critique in the book, it's self-critique, you know? And so it's, and I think being open to that is really important. Uh, and so that's, that's the first chapter. So before you get any of the, like this, and you will read some messed up things, you know, I, I do want to say that it's written in a style that everyone can enjoy. It's not too complicated. Um, but you will read some things that might astonish um, in, in my experience. And I was astonished when I, when I encountered them. But before you read some of the things that astonish you, you're going to encounter me, the author, really wrestling with whiteness and white supremacy in my own ministry. And I think that that was important for me. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think that's incredibly important for for us to do. I mean, where even if you can make that that beginning step, I mean, I grew up American Baptist, but we were all white, you know, I mean, in, in the middle of cornfield in Indiana mm. and, and, and Jesus was obviously blonde hair, blue eyed and all those things. But for you to even like go be able to grasp, welcome in, go, well, they might be right, but Jesus isn't blonde hair, blue eyed, that oh and egypt and oh and why would a white family go hide amongst brown people because they would stick out yeah you know, I, I mean when yeah. Herod was, jesus definitely know. wasn't white you know and right. i think that, that like that's that's probably a lot of people's first sort of like oh wow you know right. a lot of what i've been told about race and racialization and faith has to be untangled somehow yeah right and if you i think if you can make that first step that makes step two maybe maybe a little bit easier but because step one is so huge undoing what you've always known and and i think like the other thing too that i would say that's really important about this and it's important for people in ministry it's important in people in their daily lives and it's important for scholars and it's important for activists is to divorce and to sort of try to tease apart the difference between intent and result. And because everybody intends to do lots of really good stuff, uh, you know, but that intention is not in itself an excuse or an absolution from the damage caused. And I think that that's really important. It, guilt is not useful. I'm not talking like, let's be guilty all the time about X, Y, or Z. But I am saying that like, there's intent, and intending to do a good thing doesn't you know, doesn't absolve you of a, a result that results in harm. And I think a lot of, I think this is in particular, white folks have trouble disentangling these two. And the book is also a little bit of a disentangling. Everybody in there is cool. 
you know, in the sense that like they're they're doing good work, you know, they and they and they're they're thinking, oh, you know, I'm I'm doing, I want to stand up for the vulnerable. I want to do it, uh, you know. A lot of them say, you know, I I want to do it because uh, Jesus is a, a big part of it. Okay, cool. You know, I I get that. At the same time, what do we do with the harm that's caused to people who are recipients in sanctuary? And the two are, I'm not saying that uh, one's not important. Intent's important, but it does, it's not absolution. It's not, it's not a get out of jail free card from wrestling with the harms that are really done and caused. That's, yeah, that, I mean, really that, that's mind. It, I mean, not that it, it shouldn't be, I mean, it, it, it should not be mind blowing, but yet it is, you know, like right. the intent. No, and I think it, it is, um, yeah. and it's easy to pay lip service to, but like when we get into situations when we're like, I really want to do the good thing, but that's not what happened. It can be harder, it can be harder. Yeah. And I think that the, there's like, so in the, that first chapter, uh, one of the things that I do in addition to sort of recounting some stuff is, uh, is, is I write uh, for researchers, but also for people who are in scenarios, I guess, um, there's this, there's this, uh, Jesuit tradition of the examine or the, you know, mm -hmm. there's the Ignatian examine that's supposed to help you uh, sort of take an inventory of uh, yourself and your, and your actions throughout the day. And I wrote like a, a white supremacy examine that's uh, that you can do like it's a spiritual practice. And it's one that I began to use when I was doing research as I saw it, because it's important to be open to that criticism. It's important to mm -hmm. be open uh, to evaluation of yourself and is, uh, and being open to that is, uh, I think that that's a spiritual discipline too. It's not, it's not perhaps only a spiritual discipline, but it has a spiritual aspect to it. And I mean, and, and we don't have to pretend that, that, that being open is easy because it's not, um, and that, no. That confrontation that you have to have with yourself, where you go, "This is who I was," or "This is this is who I was," but by the grace of God, I'm not still that person. However, I've made messes along. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. So, with the book, you said that it could be read really by anybody not just yeah i don't think i use too much jargon at all i mean it's an you know it's an yeah. academic monograph I, you know it's it's published in and you know it's to advance knowledge in a specific way but i'd say 95 percent of the book is just very understandable if you wanted a history of in some ways if you want to think about the sanctuary movement and think about whiteness it's a great book but also it's just for people who want to think about, oh, how do, how do you do justice and uh, justice and activism as a white pastor, as a white lay person, as a white person in general, what are, what are some of the pitfalls um, in doing that? Uh, I think it's a good book for thinking about that. And it's a good book, honestly, for thinking, what are the limits of white allyship? What are the limits of um, what is possible through white leadership? Uh, and I think it talks a lot about that, that there are limits. Um, and part of the thing that the sanctuary movement in the 1980s made a pretty big mistake on and that the new sanctuary movement fixed in a lot of ways, but maybe not completely, 
uh, was that there was <laughs> that there uh, there's much more uh, recipient of sanctuary leadership. So there mm -hmm. was not a lot of leadership by recipients of sanctuary in the sanctuary movement in the 1980s. It was a lot of white people making a lot of decisions and speaking for. And uh, I think that that's that's um, was addressed. Although some scholars have a lot of critiques of the new sanctuary movement and how they did that too. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a scholar of the New Sanctuary Movement, and that's intentional just because yeah. I think that there are undocumented scholars who could do that work better than I am. I felt okay with the Sanctuary Movement in the 1980s since it happened before I was born, that if someone hasn't written about it yet, then uh, that feels like I definitely can write about that. And uh, I, I think that's true. I was going to ask you what you learned, but I feel like that would be that entire first chapter that you're talking about mm -hmm. so um right i mean really isn't is, is that what that's yeah no it is about learning it, it has an arc um you know to it and it, it, it talks about the possibilities of, of learning and and talks well, about, what you learned about yourself you, what about oh yourself? well yeah or well, is I that, think that the first chapter yeah i think that's true it definitely it's about it's, it's about me understanding myself and my role as a pastor the the power so uh, it's, a, it's a book about power is mm -hmm. another way to think about the book it's a book about power for sure mm -hmm. and power like it's not a bad word like power over yeah. is generally bad but power happens everywhere if we're if we're thinking we don't have to look to foucault or something to think about power most most of us think about power and it requires power to, mm -hmm. to do most things but it's just about how how do you think about uh, power in productive ways, and how do you move on from power that's not productive? Um, it's it's that kind of book for sure. Or how do you use that? How do you use that power to lift others up? Yeah, yeah. Right, um, and and how do you step back? Because I think that white activists mm -hmm. and white pastors and white congregations are perhaps not so good at stepping back. So lift up, and then can you step back and actually be led by? I think that that's a the that didn't happen a lot in the sanctuary movement in the nineteen eighties. I don't think it happens a lot now. Um, and I think that that's worth some introspection. Yeah, no, that's huge. Is really no? I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. That that is a difficult thing to do, and that whole power control. Who's doing? You know, um, stepping back and going. You know what? This is not my. This is not my. I mean, I'll walk with you, but this is not. I don't need to be first. I don't need mm -hmm. to take all that. Yeah. I think I'd like to read this book. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure it has, I, I think I'm sure it has a lot to teach me. Well, well the good right. news is that as a as a scholarly book, it's very affordable. And the paperback came out with the hardback. So it's, it's you know, it's a $22, $23. And then the PDF, if you wanted to buy an ebook version, is something like 18 which for scholarly books is really good. And folks, we will be sure to put the links um, for Amazon and uh, Bloomsbury in the show notes um, so that, that if you would like to get a copy of the book, you can get the book as well. Um, I want to be sure that I ask you the joy question because I almost forgot it last time I got so excited about talking about somebody else's book that I like totally forgot. And I was like, wait, back up. We can't. We can't forget the joy question so like sure what's the thing that brings you joy yeah joy for me so like i think that um 
I get a lot of joy from writing. So I think that that's, that's really, you know, I do like to write a lot. I write a variety of things, right? And it's not always political. It's not always academic. Um, I, I do these things for Sojourners that came out uh, last month's issue. That's like a, uh, a review of Good Omens 2, uh, which is a TV show and talked about faith in Good Omens 2, for instance. And so I do culture stuff. I like to, but I really get a lot out of writing. I really do like to write. I think it's um, it's important. Part of the fun of the book was that I got to write, right? So, um, and now it lives in the world and other people can engage with it and think about it. So for me, uh, I get a lot of joy out of writing. I get a lot thinking through something coming to a conclusion, trying to advocate for it in the best way possible. Uh, for me, that's all a lot of fun. Um, more personally, you know, I mean, I, I get a lot of joy out of uh, my family and being able to hang out with my daughter and uh, she's learning to read and that's always really fun. Mm. You think you have another book in you? Sure, yeah, uh, there's, a, there's already a, a couple in the works. So oh. we'll see. Not, I'm not, I'm not going to do a single author book for a while, probably. Okay. I have a couple collaborations that are that are coming out. So Dr. Neighbors and I have written a manuscript, and we're hoping that that will come out soon. And um, and uh, my wife, Reverend Dr. Anna Piela, and I are, are writing a, a book about Islamophobia and what the church can do to counter that. Um, so there's a there's a lot of there's projects on the horizon and some uh, another sort of collaboration on uh, reparations and faith. And I don't have to tell you, but you know, I think your wife is pretty fabulous. You me know, too. <laughs> colleagues and coworkers. Too. Yes, I know you think that, but look, you know, I'm just throwing that out there. Um, yeah. So I, I would, I, I'm excited about like the books that you have coming because i think those are i mean the islamophobia one especially like that's huge but um i might need you to uh introduce me to to uh reverend dr michael neighbors so that, i think i can um, do that yeah we'll see yeah um and and so that, that we hear his story too because i mean it's important it needs to be told and this is, this is, wow. This is what I love about doing this is like, you learn something every single time. And if I don't, then I'm not paying attention. I mean, yeah. So I I have a great appreciation for you and the work you're doing. And I'll just say, um, Michael Ware also, sings your praises i mean um he um you know is a, is a is a great advocate for you and your your ministry there um so um yeah he's a dear friend yeah we're in a clergy group together i love the guy yeah um so so keep keep doing the, the great work and i can't wait to to see what's what's next and um look forward to to reading it all so cool awesome. thanks well, thanks for having me yeah for thank sure. you so much thank you so much for being on here and i'm gonna um find some of these links like the sojourners i can't read it yet because that's on my list to do on my uh 
vacation time next week because okay. watch season two. I haven't seen. Oh, you can't read it yet. yet then. No, it's very good. No, I've no. um, not seen season two yet, but that's the plan for. So, um, but I will still put the links down there uh, for folks to, to, to read it. Sure, so, sure. You can probably you just so put much. the link to the author page because that has all the stuff I write for them too. That would yeah. be cool. Thanks so much for being a part of this this, this craziness. Um, I thought it went good. You know, I thought it was a good yeah. conversation. So, um, And we thank everybody for watching.